Hello and welcome to Live from the Space Shed, a podcast all about space and science hosted by me, John Spooner, and me. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I mean you. <laughs> Mini John. Long story short, a few years ago I accidentally set up my own space agency based out of the shed at the bottom of my garden. Turns out that if you go around telling people you're the director of human spaceflight operations for the unlimited space agency wearing an orange spacesuit, more people than you might think want to play along. And now the British astronaut Tim Peake is our patron and he took me with him to space. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, all right, he took you with him to space. So Minnie John became UNSA's first astronaut. Since then, we've been touring in UNSA's mobile headquarters, The Space Shed, to festivals like Latitude and Blue Dot, telling stories, talking to some super cool space and science people, and we've recorded our chats so you can find out about their amazing work as well. Uh Yes, MJ? Uh, Oh, uh, well, human rights... They're just the basic rights and freedoms that all people are supposed to have. Uh-huh. Uh, like, well, like the right to express your opinions, to not be tortured, to be free from slavery, the right to work, the right to live freely, basically. Uh-huh. Who looks after those rights? Uh, well, well, we do. We all look out for each other's human rights, and then if we need them, there are laws to protect those rights. Uh-huh. Yeah, laws. Do you not pay attention at school? Look, I mean, like you have rules at school, and if you break them, you get told off, yeah? Well, tell you what, how about we listen to the chat that I had with the lawyer and social justice activist, Harpreet Kaur Paul, who knows loads more about this than I do. <laughs> OK, then. Begin systems checks. Let's launch this episode of... <laughs> with the brilliant Harpreet Kaur Paul. You out there, right? Yeah! Hello, my name is John. John Spooner. I am the Director of Human Spaceflight Operations, obviously, here at the Unlimited Space Agency. Welcome to Answers HQ, the Space Shed. Give it up for the Space Sheds! Um, welcome. Uh, we're here all day today. We're telling stories and trying to save the planet. A bit later today, uh, I'm going to be telling the story at four o'clock of... I'll I tell you a secret. I have actually been into space. I know, right? Yeah, you see? You're like, the one person's in I've been to space! And I'll be telling the story at four o'clock of how I did that. And a little bit uh, earlier than that, 2.30 today, we're going to be interviewing um, Maddie Moat, the BBC television presenter in The Shed. But before then, right now, one of my favourite things about my job as Director of Human Spaceflight Operations is that I get to meet loads of really interesting people. Uh, Lots of scientists, space scientists often, but... This summer, because there is, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, a climate emergency, we wanted to talk to some people that know about that. So this morning, joined by a researcher from the University of Warwick. She is a climate justice activist and campaigner. Would you please give it up for Harpreet Kaur-Paul! Harpreet, 
Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a real, <laughs> real pleasure, a genuine pleasure to have you in the shed. Thank you very much for coming in. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Yeah. It's a beautiful day. It is a beautiful day, isn't it? And all these people as well. Mm. Um, Hubri, I've just introduced you as a, a climate justice activist and campaigner. Mm. What's that then? <laughs> what is it that you do? So I work a lot within NGOs and outside of NGOs, um, trying to look at the systematic causes of climate change and address them through a political and ethical lens. Basically, you know a load of stuff about climate change and the legal uh, implications of what's happening to people, and you're fighting to stop the worst effects of climate change affecting the most disadvantaged people. Yes. Excellent. I'm aware that... Not many of you probably came out today wanting to talk about the fact that we're in a climate emergency. Um, I'm just guessing that, but it's important, we think, to be talking about this because it's a really scary thing. I've got children, you've all, there's a lot of children here. It's a really scary thing that's happening right now. Um, but let's just cover off it. There is a climate emergency. There is a climate emergency, Okay. Yes. Can you tell us what we mean by, what you mean by climate emergency and how did we get here? Yeah, so I think firstly it's worth kind of differentiating between what I mean by climate justice and climate action in general. So there's a slogan in the climate justice movement that says systems change, not climate change. And that is because we're looking at the political, social, economic, cultural factors that disadvantage certain people more than others, which we say has led to the situation that we're currently in. And if we're kind of looking at a climate justice lens and we look at what happened in France, in President Emmanuel Macron's government, um, we saw a proposal to introduce a carbon tax after the president had reduced taxation from some of the wealthiest people in the country, and it led to this huge movement that was called the Yellow Vest Movement. And Can I just ask, what do yes. you mean by carbon tax? So it was a tax that was going to be in proportion to the emissions that um, people were paying. For individuals? For individuals, so this yes. So it depend on how much energy you use, what sort of car you have, yes. how much carbon you're emitting into the atmosphere, you would be taxed Except on that. that it wasn't done proportionately. So what ended up what it ended up meaning was that the people that were the poorest would end up paying five times more. And that's really important if you're seeing things through a climate justice lens because 10% of people contribute 50% of CO2 emissions. They're the wealthiest people. They have multiple homes, multiple cars. Um, they have all the latest tech gadgets. And if you imagine that visually, so 10% of the people in this space taking up half of the atmospheric space leaving 90% of people with the other half and within that 90% the poorest people are the least responsible but experience the worst possible impacts and when we think about a climate emergency um, what we're talking about is an emergency that's disproportionately impacting people that are least responsible. And when we talk about climate emergency, this is, um, Greta Thunberg has been particularly good on this in the last year, or has been very high profile on it, that in an emergency, you don't say, well, let's deal with it in 20 years' time. Yeah. You say, let's, let's deal with the emergency, let's put the fire out right, right now. If your house is on fire, don't wait to put it out, put it out now, right? And that's Yes, what and it isn't on fire, and it has been on fire for a long time. We're seeing crop yields reducing, water already being becoming scarce, um, Cyclones are increasing in frequency and severity, uh, diseases spreading, sea levels rising, um, and those that are most responsible and have the most resources to address it are 
from a climate justice lens, actually profiting from the crisis. Which doesn't sound right, does it? It's a cheery subject (laughs) for a Saturday afternoon family day, isn't it? It's a horrible subject and it has a horrible past because um, for a lot of climate justice activists, you ask the question, how did we get here? A lot of people would go back to colonialism and there's an author who wrote this book, The Memory We Could Be, and he describes the way nature narrates the colonial story and I'll read a quote from this book. He says, Across continents... Mangroves, grasslands, rainforests and wetlands were cleared to make way for quarries, plantations, ranches, roads and railways. Ecocide came hand in hand with ethnocide. And I think it's really important to remember when we're talking about how we got where we are that the British fought three wars to get access to Burmese forests. In Belgium, 10 million people, half the population, uh, in in relation to Belgian colonialism, which resulted in going into places like Congo, 10 million people, half the population of the Congo at the time, um, died as the Belgian people that the state tried to get access to rubber and ivory. We've got slavery, which was directly about getting people into silver and gold mining and crops. Um, various different crop plantations vast forests being cleared for livestock and sugar um, all generally meant to produce things that were flowing up to the global north so there's a long history of inequality and it's these same countries that experienced colonialism that are at the forefront of experiencing climate impacts as well because I often hear people say to me, you know, the UK, or we here in the global north, this part of the, what some people call the Western or the developed world, um, have really benefited from this. And people say, we're doing really well at reducing our emissions. You know, the UK in particular. And I have people saying to me, it's not us, you know, it's the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, speak to the Indians about uh, what they're doing. And that, f- it's like, well, we started this. It's our, we made this situation. We need to take responsibility for it. Yeah, and again, making those links with um, colonisation. So colonisation saw India's economy reduced from 27% to 3%. China's reduced from 35% to 7%, while Europe's increased from 20 to 60%. What that means today is that we here have the infrastructure and the resources to adapt relatively well to climate change. The same impact of sea level rise won't be felt here because of that legacy in comparison to somewhere um, like the Carteret Islands. Um, but it also directly funded that 20 to 60% rise in the share of the global economy, directly funded the Industrial Revolution. And if you're looking at greenhouse gas emissions between 1850 and 2002, early industrialisers were responsible for three times as many greenhouse gas emissions than the whole of the rest of the world. To say that in a different way. of people were responsible for three times as many greenhouse gas emissions than the rest of the world, which hosts 85% of the population. And when you fast forward to saying, yes, okay, India and China now are large emitters of greenhouse gases uh, uh, themselves, there are lots of studies which suggest that almost 50% of China's greenhouse gas emissions are in export zones, directly producing things that we're benefiting from, things that we don't actually need so you know (laughs) plastic stuff that's all over our toy shops and things so approximately 50% of Chinese things that we label as Chinese greenhouse gas emissions are in export zones making goods ending up here that we don't actually need. So it's basically extremely unfair the system at the moment that we have and the effects of this climate emergency 
up unfair to and this is i think because you, you're a researcher here now yes but you didn't you started you came from here you, you were a solicitor mm-hmm. so you're a lawyer representing what did, what brought you to climate justice where did where did that journey start for you what was it that prompted you to want to fight for this mm-hmm. yeah i had been representing people that had been tortured in various different places throughout the world more cheeriness. and more cheeriness it gets worse um, speak to your mum about that later <laughs> and decided that the culmination of the economic, political, social, cultural things that I'm talking about had meant that we're in a particular moment in time where the opportunities for future generations and the current reality for people in the global south, predominantly you know, in places like Senegal, Malaysia, etc., is so bad that this is the thing that we all need to be paying attention to. And because climate, the climate emergency isn't only affecting people's... Uh, what are the ways that it's affecting people? It affects other human rights, right? It affects a lot of different things. So it, many of you might remember earlier this year, there was a cyclone, cyclone a day, which hit um, Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe. That cyclone impacted two million people. People suffered from dehydration, hunger, cholera, drowning. Six weeks later, there was another cyclone, Cyclone Kenneth, which is that unprecedented. That's a terrible name for a cy- it's Cyclone horrible. Kenneth. Kenneth. <laughs> it, it doesn't like sound it, it very malicious. Like it could do much harm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's unprecedented in human history for there to have been, or in recorded history, for there to have been two such strong cyclones to hit Mozambique. Mozambique, um, you know, most people live on less than $1.30 a day. 30%, less than 30% of people have elect- access to electricity. They produce something like 55 times less CO2 emissions compared to the average US citizen. And at the same time, they've had foreign loans from funded by some London banks to fund titanium, coal, the agro industry, enriching a number of people at the same time that the majority of people are kept very poor. And you can hear just from that one example of the impacts of those cyclones, the kind of wide array of impacts that climate change will have on access to food, to shelter, to clean water, sanitation, um, and life uh, as well. Painting a pretty <laughs> bleak picture for us this morning, Harpery, which we talked about this before, but, you know, it's, um, it's important uh, to talk about this. The best way to stop feeling, or to start feeling useful and not scared, so we're gonna, is to start talking about it um, in these sorts of contexts as well. There are some ways that we can really positively, and that you in particular are really uh, positively dealing with uh, some of these problems. just want to, how can what, what you call the human rights framework Mm-hmm. So this idea about human rights, how can that help us to fight climate change? Well, when you look at human rights, you often talk about who is responsible and who should have access to a remedy. So one of the first things is to say, OK, if we're really committed to what the Paris Agreement says, which is that we want to keep global average surface temperature rise to well below two, gr- degree, two degrees and pursue efforts to keep it below 1.5, then what that means is that countries like the UX and UK used their fair share of that quota in the 1930s and 40s. So they have a responsibility to pay. So do corporations. The 2017 um, Carbon Major Study found that um, 100 fossil fuel companies were responsible for something like 71% of anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. That's human-caused greenhouse gas emissions. And banks are funding fossil fuel companies to the tune of 1.9 trillion um, every year, which is something that could 
um, or since December 2015, since the Paris Agreement was um, was signed, and that's something which could go towards uh, renewable energy instead. Uh, human rights can play a role. So if we take the Typhoon Haiyan, which hit the Philippines in 2013 and caused more than 7,000 people to die, one million homes to be displaced, four mil uh, one million homes to be damaged, four million people to be displaced, um, what you saw two years later were survivors from that uh, typhoon, fisher folk who are experiencing reduced um, fish stock and uh, civil society coming together to say we want to hold corporations, specifically fossil fuel companies, to account for impacting our basic rights to life, water, food, sanitation, adequate housing and self-determination. We're still awaiting for a decision in that case, but what I think it shows is a kind of a real movement and we're seeing lots of movements with the youth climate strikes and XR and other things but a real movement to say we need to put people and the planet before profit. There's um, one of the most inspiring stories that I've heard about over this last year um, and I'm a big fan of one of my favourite podcasts is a podcast called Mothers of Invention but it's all about climate justice and they describe um, how young people in particular but people are using the law to sue their governments or their schools in order to say you are impacting on my human rights and on my health and it was, there was a very famous uh, case in Holland, I think, mm -hmm. where they were successful. And as a result, policy has to be changed in order to reduce those emissions to stop hurting their citizens. Yes, the Agenda case and the Juliana case in the US, which is still going through the courts. Um, and that is hugely positive. And I agree that legal action is really important and it's one tool. I also think that direct action and um, taking to the streets and getting action through other means is also very important. Shall we highlight uh, some... What are the opportunities that people have coming up uh, to get involved <laughs> with some of those direct actions? Next Friday, yeah. there is the Youth Climate Strike, um, which is really important. So come out, support young people who will be disproportionately impacted in the future to by coming out on the street. And it's not just... Because it, this has been the Youth Climate Strike. Anyone here been on the Youth Climate Strike? Some of you, excellent. Well done. Um... But this has been happening all this year, throughout 2019, a lot of young people going out every Friday, striking from school, a lot, the slogan that I love, you know, if you don't act like adults, we will. Um, what's the point of going to school when there's going to be no future? The 20th, Friday the 20th, is it the 20th or 21st? 20th, I think. I think it's 20th. It yeah. Friday the 20th of September, they're inviting everyone to come out and strike with them. Adults, strike from your workplace or take the day off. If you don't want to strike, then use a holiday day. Go out, show solidarity with those young people. And I think if you go to globalclimatestrike.net, then you can find out where your where your nearest strike is how you can get involved how you can support those young people extinction rebellion are also who um we've had some of the guys from xr in recently uh they're organizing a, a big piece of global action through october as well i think yes and i think direct action is hugely important you see direct action in australia and in places around the world and at coal plants as well which has been hugely successful in stopping um, development of the fossil fuel industry um, if you're a university student you can get your university to divest in from fossil fuels to get it to reinvest in renewable energy um, if you're working in your workplace ask what your pension fund is investing in and get them to divest from fossil fuels there's lots we can be doing which sounds 
like the idea of oh yeah i'd love for my employer my big organization to divest to stop investing in those fossils sounds a bit difficult to do it's been hugely successful. So lots of universities within the UK and the US have already divested from fossil fuel, removing billions um, in pounds from the fossil fuel industry. Um, so collective action like that is really, really important and it works. It really does. Um, and um, Harpreet has contributed. We've made... Because I sometimes feel like it is really hard. Part of the reason why we're doing this big project at the moment is that I didn't really know what to do or how to do it, and everything felt really overwhelming. And I met some really cool activists, and they said, just do something. Do the thing that you can. And then I started talking to people like you, and we made a little website called How to Save the Dot Earth. So How to Save the Dot Earth, and it has five levels. Level one, which is something you can do right now, something you can do immediately today uh, in order to get involved, through to level... Uh, level three is something ideas for things that you can do with a little bit more effort this month or over the course of this year through to level five where you can dedicate your life like Harpre, how you would dedicate your life to fighting climate justice and climate change if that's what you wanted to do and Harpreet's contributed so there's links there for if you want to encourage your university your employer to divest go there and you just go here join this movement protest and this is how you do it so it's not that difficult right how do so I've asked you this before but what can we as individuals do that is useful? You talked about direct action. We've talked about um, being able to pressure your employer. What else are you hot for people doing as individuals? I think it's really important to learn about the historic causes um, for where we are, where we are, because without doing that, it's really easy to kind of be swayed by policy proposals that don't actually address the root causes of our problem. So I know it's, um, you know, a really boring thing to do, but I think um, reading stuff, Naomi Klein is brilliant and stuff that Just she's written to... Uh, reading. Who likes reading? <laughs> It's quite a lot of people like reading. It's not boring. Let's not make those excuses. Reading, and you learn stuff, you know. So it's, yeah. mm -hmm. Naomi Klein. Yes. Yeah. She's written some brilliant stuff about how trade policies and economic systems, etc., all work together to create the crisis. And what we don't want is um, solutions which say, OK, let's just change um, current energy systems to renewable energy because what we'll continue to have is uh, children working in mines in Congo and people working in horrible conditions in sweatshops in China, manufacturing renewable energy solar panels. Um, we'll have conflict and war, except that the the weapons will be retrofitted for renewable energy and so read stuff that deepens your analysis of how we've got where we are and the fact that lots of things need to change to move towards global justice which is for us what climate justice is all about cool uh, which Naomi Klein would you recommend um, I really liked this changes everything yeah which is good yeah. I like um, no is not enough mm -hmm. which is the one after that I yes, think yes it is because that feels like it's like the, it, she wrote it very fast and it's, it feels to me like one of the most easily sort of readable ones because they're massive books a lot of the time um, this changes everything is extraordinary but no it's not enough was one that I thought oh I can yes. give this to my kids my kids are like teenagers so yeah and I know a lot of people talk about you know reducing your meat consumption maybe just having meat once a week buying locally things like that I think they're all very important things to do I think my reluctance to go to those suggestions immediately is that 
for some people who are working three zero-hour contract jobs and they come home, actually it's really fast to crack some eggs open and make an omelette for your kids. And I don't want to be part of a movement that makes them feel bad because lots of things need to change to enable a transition. And I want a movement that says, okay, where you're at that's what you can do without kind of shaming people for not being vegan or not being able to afford to buy locally organic from which is you know ideally what would happen but we need to change the system so that things like that are available to everybody we need to change the system so that it doesn't cost ridiculous amounts of money to use the train <laughs> we need to change a lot of things to get to the system that we need and i don't want to be part of movement that goes all right you should be doing all of these things and me, you're not so you're a bad person yeah me, i agree and i think it's a really important <laughs> message we've heard a lot over the summer speaking to people like yourself about um not blaming the individual it's the mm -hmm. systems and the structure when you change and direct action is a really good way of doing that you talk about feeling good as well they're really fun those protests <laughs> and you meet loads of people like-minded people mm -hmm. um which has been where have you been protesting <laughs> I have been, oh gosh, in lots of different places from in, in Mexico to London to New York outside banks. Um, there's a big boycott Barclays campaign because Barclays is one of the biggest banks that's supporting the fossil fuel industry. So there are a lot of organizations targeting Barclays in the UK. So I've been outside a lot of Barclays banks. Um, yes, too many to name. <laughs> We've got, again, that changing your bank account thing is a really good one mm -hmm. um, and letting them know. And again, it's, it feels like it could be a really tedious task you'd have to again we've, we've got a link on the website how to save the dot earth um which is a there's a website that's built and you basically just click and it does it for you so there's lots of people like yourself doing really amazing work to make it as straightforward as possible for us to have this change um going to use this it's not often i would say that you get the opportunity to meet i don't people that are experts in this sort of stuff this slightly terrifying stuff but also this really proactive stuff that means that we can feel better by doing things about it um if anyone's got questions that they would like to ask harpri about climate change climate justice um or anything related to it this is your opportunity uh, there's a hand immediately going up hi hello my school wants to stop selling plastic bottles but it makes a lot of money from selling water, not just free out of a fountain. So they wanted to explore what other products would be more recyclable, like water in a can. Is there another solution or do we just have to cut our losses, which in education is a really serious issue as well? Your question really highlights what I was saying earlier, that the climate crisis isn't just about climate. It's about a lot of things. It's about austerity, which has caused foods to, at schools to need to make money from water. <laughs> so, you know, there's a direct link between neoliberal econ um, economic policy and austerity that's pushing schools to do ridiculous things like that. Um, we sh and, and the economic system, which says you have to make a profit. Why should, why should we have to make a profit from water? Water should be a basic right that everybody has access to there are products um, that you can use I'm not the expert on what they would do I'm the expert on kind of saying we need to refund our schools <laughs> we need a totally different system so that schools aren't forced into that position to start off with brilliant I'm so pleased that you've and it, because uh, it's really easy to get stuck in those well what but uh, they work for you.com if you're not already write to your MPs um, get out on the streets and protest and one of the things we have to do is yeah 
more money for schools. Why? Because we have to make it. I've read something brilliant yesterday that really changed how I was thinking, saying uh, the bottled water companies aren't making money from selling water. They're making money from selling plastic bottles. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really interesting just sort of little shift that you go, well, I don't want to. I don't want to support that. <laughs> they're not making money from selling water, but they're also, you know, there are stories of Nestle kind of taking water from indigenous reserves in, in, in North America, directly taking water away from people that desperately need it to be able to bottle it, to sell it to us. <laughs> and all the carbon emissions of flying it over and all of that kind of stuff. Um, absolutely ridiculous. And speaking of indigenous peoples, I just wanted to kind of recognise that the centuries of oppression and exploitation to have to have faced the violence of colonialism, they have protected 80% of our biodiversity. That's indigenous peoples directly protecting 80% of our biodiversity that we have. And they continue to um, be impacted by uh, plans to open mines, plans to conserve um, their system, which they've protected themselves through local customary traditional uh, forms of knowledge and we really need to be highlighting just how much um, they've done and I think one of the biggest things that colonialism did outside of the direct impact was to change our way of being in nature it kind of said if you're not exploiting people, if you're not extracting things and producing things all the time, um, what are you doing? You know, we just need to grow, grow, grow produce, produce, produce and it was completely in contravention to local indigenous cosmologies which talked about our inseparability to nature and and our responsibility of stewardship towards it as well and um, I think that helps to explain why 80% of our biodiversity is held in indigenous territories Um, but it also means that we should be looking up struggles that they're facing and, and supporting them to continue to do that when we can yeah I agree um Another one of my favourite podcasts, I'm big into podcasts, my is Pod Save the People, which does a really brilliant job of highlighting uh, other cases that I would just not hear about otherwise, where indigenous communities are being directly affected by corporations, by governments, uh, for the sake of profit, and, and increasingly on that climate uh, justice tip. So yeah, Pod Save the People as well. Thanks, Harpreet. That answered your question pretty well, I reckon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just but while we're there... In the short term, and until we manage to change the political system, and you know we'll get the election that we deserve, won't we? Um, what products? What products could you? You thought? Have you got any ideas for stuff that you could do instead of flogging water? No. If anyone's got any ideas, send them in on the internet. We'll give. We'll we'll we'll, we'll crowdsource some ideas for you. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, anyone else got a question for Harpreet? Um, your career sounds absolutely incredible, and I was just wondering if you could give everyone who's listening like a little taste of how how you got into that line of work because to me it sounds like well I personally feel like anything else career-wise that we're doing at the moment seems a little useless um so yeah it'd be really interesting to hear how you got into this line of work um you know I think the the practical advice is is um you're if, if you're young and at school go and volunteer with um NGOs charities groups, grassroots groups, low carbon hubs in your local area, find out what they're doing and build up from there. The reason that I got involved in, in first in social justice activism and then later in, in kind of justice activism more broadly um, were directly related to experiences 
um, in my family. So my grandparents um, were all born in a part of Punjab that's now in Pakistan, but then they later migrated to India after partition, um, the partition of India after the British left. And that area of Punjab, through what was called the Green Revolution, um, was subjected to these horrible policies to change the way rivers flowed, to change the way to build dams, to, to kind of build, bring in Monsanto as this massive corporation that said instead of having local, traditional, sustainable ways of farming, bring in these seeds that will kind of give you a massive crop for a while, um, and, but then you have to buy the seeds every single year. You can't harvest them. Um, and it completely depleted the soil. It completed... Completely ruined a lot of natural ways in which the rivers used to flow um, which had a huge impact on people it's estimated that something like um, two people an hour commit suicide in the state now directly as a result of these types of um, policies and it, w it kind of um, illuminated me to the impacts of uh, what was called then the green revolution this was going to feed lots of people but was hugely unsustainable how, so that's it was basically a story. Mm. That, who told you that story? Part, partly my grandparents, partly um, I kind of learnt about it over time as I became more interested in hearing about the stories of people that are most vulnerable to the systems that we are currently facing. I suppose this is where it's how I feel useful sometimes. It's just mm -hmm. the idea that by telling these stories or trying to help uh, create spaces for other people to tell those stories, that you learn about that and it becomes less about you and uh, more about having to stand up for other people in that way as well. There's a brilliant organisation called Our Climate Voices, who uh, organisation that empowers young people from lots of different communities in the world to tell the stories about their experience of how they've been affected by climate change. And it's just really terrifying, upsetting, and also really inspiring. Um, so that's another recommendation for you. I think it's really important to, to hear those stories, and I've, I've presented in other spaces where people have just gone, oh gosh, I don't want to hear that, you know, every day 1,300 people are leaving rural parts of Bangladesh because of saltwater intrusion. It just feels like too much. I don't want to hear about the millions of people experiencing drought in the Horn of Africa or the people in Guatemala experiencing crop failure from coffee and other things. It's just too too much and I think um, from where we're sitting we have an obligation to sit through that uncomfortableness <laughs> because we are not in that position and it creates for me a responsibility to listen to understand and say well what can we meaningfully do so that um, we can improve the situation for those people but that we don't make it worse for future generations as well. I wholeheartedly agree thanks Harpreet any more questions that anybody has? I don't know if you can see. I, I'm just going to take a step away from the camera for a bit. So I travelled to New Zealand because I've got family and I'm originally from there. But I was wondering, you know, maybe every two years or something, I wondered if you had any good sort of recommendations for carbon sort of offset schemes because I know that can be a bit of a minefield as well. Good question. We've not had a... How do you feel about carbon offsetting, Harpreet? <laughs> You, you probably have an inclination about what <laughs> I'm about to say. Um, 
Well, you know, don't don't fly is for me. It's part of this this whole like take individual action. And you've heard a lot about how my preference is for collective action for a very different system. When you say don't fly to um, people in small island developing states in the Pacific that are experiencing um, cyclones, they're experiencing sea level rise. They need to fly to kind of you know to live. To that that's absolutely a necessity for people in in those countries. And we need to have a life where we feel connected to the places we come from and the people that we love and adore. And we need ways to travel to see them that are sustainable. Um, and that's not going to, to stop. Um, there is a huge problem with carbon offsets. Some of the conservation projects that are about saying, oh, let's protect this forest in the Congo and, or in Nepal, um, and they're funded by some carbon offset projects, um, remove the local forest peoples and indigenous peoples that have protected that area very well for a long period of time from the land so that we can feel a bit better about carbon offsetting this particular journey or doing this particular thing. And I think they have been shown to be ineffective in the long term as well because um, we need to do both. We need to protect our carbon sinks, things like forests, the biodiversity and the ocean diversity we have. But we also need to stop emitting and um, fossil fuel companies as I say, 100 fossil fuel companies responsible for something like 71% um, the wealthiest 10% of people responsible for 50% um, we need to kind of fundamentally restructure these types of issues um, that put resources with people that are most responsible for putting us in this situation um, so the state subsidies for fossil fuel companies are something like 5.3 trillion when you include indirect subsidies every year that could fund a radical shift to renewable energy tomorrow we just need to decide to do it you know it's estimated that less than 2 trillion is needed to get to complete renewable energy by 2050 I think we need to do it earlier but if we're spending five trillion on uh, fossil fuel, fuel subsidies subsidy. every year, then we could spend more than that to shift to renewable energy, to create sustainable forms of transport, to um, have housing that is responsive to changing climates, to um, have local food sources, and these you know these structural things instead of. Um, Today, I, you know, I talked historically co about colonial uh, forest intrusion, but today when you look at stories of the Amazon and Borneo and the impact in Brazil and Indonesia of impact in, in the rainforests there, who's profiting? It's soy producers, it's palm oil producers, things that are going into our burgers, our chocolates and things, into everything. And you can't say stop doing that one thing or stop doing that thing because a lot of these things are connected and the, the structure needs to change. And how? And just to reiterate, how do we achieve that structure change, in your opinion, Harpreet? I think we've done it through various points in history. We've ended colonialism, we ended slavery, we ended apartheid. There are lots of points in, in our history where we thought things were permanent. We thought that the structures and the ways societies operated were permanent, and it turned out that it wasn't. And we can look back to those movements and take inspiration. So the apartheid movement uses, used boycotts, um, divestment and sanctions as a strategy. It used 
uh, anti-colonial struggles, got thousands of people out on the street to say this is enough, it's time for change, it's inappropriate that 5 trillion US dollars in subsidies are going <laughs> to fossil fuel companies that are profiting from a climate emergency and it needs to stop um, and it's possible. And if, that's, if, if any of that resonates for you, I hope you're saying, get out there, protest, rebel, demand that change. As uh, the brilliant Greta Thunberg says, yes. you know, the, we have to change the politics because otherwise we are... Well, there are words you could use. Um, you're not going to run away, are you? I'll be around. Yeah, so if yeah. you didn't get the opportunity to ask a question because you were feeling shy or it just didn't feel appropriate um, for whatever reason, then uh, come over and uh, have a chat with Harpreet after. Is there anything else? You, how do we... Can we keep in touch with you on any of the social medias? Are you, do you Twitter? Yes, Harpreet K. Paul on Twitter and add at gmail.com to email me. I'm very open, happy to have a conversation. Yeah, do what you can. Every 0.01 degree of global average surface, te uh, surface temperature rise means millions of people will either have or not have access to water, either have or not have access to food and shelter and you know, we need to stop emitting greenhouse gas emissions and we need to ensure that those already experiencing the impacts of a one degree rise have what they need so that they can live just and sustainable lives themselves too. That's the end, I think, basically. <laughs> On that note, Harpreet Ka Kapoor, everybody. Thank you, Harpreet. <laughs> Harpreet is cool, MJ. I agree. Really inspiring stuff there even if some of it is quite challenging to have to listen to. But like Harpreet says, it's important we hear these stories of other people's struggles so that we can pass them on and help stop more bad things from happening in the future. <laughs> I love your optimism, Mini John. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share us with your friends and family. We'll be back again soon for more Live from the Space Shed. Live from the Space Shed is an unlimited theatre production with Season 1 brought to you in association with the Science and Technologies Facilities Council, the Cockcroft Institute, the Space and Arts Council England, with special thanks to Dr. Rob Appleby of Manchester University. Our theme music is Go by Public Service Broadcasting, used with their extremely kind permission. Our sound engineer and editor is Andy Wood, with additional sound design by Elena Pena. The show is produced by John Spooner and Alice Massey, with support from our friends at Story Things. Live from the Space Shed is an unlimited theatre production on behalf of the Unlimited Space Agency. See you for more... <laughs> Live from the Space Shed, soon. thespaceshed.com